Welcome to Views from the Clutch. I go by the name of Smart Alex. I'm here with my brother from another. C. Graham, what's good? And we are here to bring you episode 64 yes, of Views from the Clutch, COVID-19 edition. This is, I think, our second episode while in quarantine. Um, there are pros and cons to what we are going, going through in this global situation. I hope everyone has been able to stay safe. That is the motto. Stay inside if you can. If you are essential, I hope that you are practicing safe practices as you go to and from the places that you need to go. For any of you that are listening and are part of the essential crowd, we appreciate your services to the world community tremendously. Um, as, a, as a gift to our loyal viewers and subscribers, we have something special for y'all. But before we get into that, as always, if you would like to leave us a message, you can do so by leaving a voice note on any of the podcasting platforms where we are hosted. If you would like to reach us directly, you can do so by shooting us an email at viewsfromtheclutch at gmail.com. You can tag us on social media at Views from the Clutch on Facebook and Instagram. And episode 64 begins, and our special guest is, you can find him on Instagram at Drills and Skills B-Ball, all one word. D-R-I-L-L-S-A-N-D-S-K-I-L-L-S-B-Ball on Instagram. We have our guest Paul on the show. Paul, why don't you go ahead and tell everybody hello? I uh, appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, Paul Easton from Drills and Skills Basketball. Um, I'm a skills trainer in the DMV area, uh, primarily Virginia. I work with players all the way from um, middle school all the way up to the professional level as well. And originally, I'm from overseas, over in Scotland and the UK, uh, but I've been in the States now for 15 years. Wow. Wow. You're from Scotland. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Basking so, across borders. So now, see, 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 he's tempted me already with the segue. So being a person that's native to the land of Scotland, what is the basketball culture like, or what was it like before you left Scotland to come to the United States? Like, what do you recall about the basketball scene in Scotland before you? Well, came? It's, obviously, it's a very small country, uh, like 5.5 million people. It's a very small basketball community. It is growing, um, but it's still very small in comparison. So when I grew up, it was what we call football, which is soccer, golf, rugby. I mean, I tried pretty much every sport before I tried basketball. And then once I tried, once I got into basketball, wow. I just fell in love. Awesome. So what was it like to fall in love with the game in a, in a, in a part of the world where, I mean, let's just be real. In Scotland, I would think that the, the, the traditional sport is probably going to be soccer yep. Yep. or football, as it's called overseas, and then maybe cricket and other sports along those lines, European-based, world-based world sports uh, of that kind. Absolutely. I know basketball has been as expanding. The Dream Team kind of, like, made it a global phenomenon. But the idea that being in a place like Scotland, I mean, come on. 
I, I live in New York where you could just go two miles and there's going to be a basketball court. Well, two blocks, go. not two in miles. Scotland. What? Two blocks in New York. I live in Long Island. Oh, I live okay. in Long oh, Island. My Queens. bad, my bad, my bad. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Suburbs, my bad. <laughs> oh, <he's, laughs> slip the jab, slip the jab, slip the jab. So, Paul, back to you, sir, drills and skills. What, what, what was it like finding a game in Scotland versus what you've come to understand how easy it is in America? The, the game itself, the availability of playing the game. It was very difficult. We had no high school basketball at my high school. It was all club basketball. And we would train once, maybe twice a week, play at the weekend, and that was it. But it's, it's made me appreciate, like, for example, I've been really fortunate here to, to, to train in great areas. I've trained players from Georgetown, University of Maryland, the Washington Mystics. I've been on some pretty awesome arenas and floors, and I appreciate it all. Like, when I was in Scotland, we didn't even have outdoor basketball courts. We had to do a big fundraiser just to get one, and it was like a, it was like a, gravel, a gravel court. It was so bad. Wow. Um, oh, like, man. So you're, like, talking, like, cobblestone, like, 17th much. century level? Pretty much. Pretty much. Wow. Watch, watch for the crack when you do a crossover type of type Pretty of? much. Pretty wow. much. So it was very, uh, it, it's very difficult to, to do that. So we appreciate any gym time we could get. So it's funny. When I do a lot of training now, players will say, oh, I don't like to train outside. And for me, I'm like, man, when I was younger, we would do, we would take anything we could get. Mm. And that's kind of akin to how I grew up. And I'm pretty sure it's kind of similar for C. Grant growing up in those mean streets of Queens that he grew up in. We both know each other from New York, but my childhood doesn't, re- you know, resonate totally with New York. I lived in the southern part of the United States. So I grew up in the south, you know, like Atlanta, Florida, states like that. And their basketball culture is kind of, I wouldn't say similar to Scotland, mm-hmm. but it's remedial in the level of the accessibility to facilities and the priorities of making basketball a, a, forth, a forthcoming sport. They weren't really there. Like when you're growing up in Georgia and Florida, you either play football or run track. Yeah. So if you happen to play basketball, it's because your coach wanted to find something for you to do to keep you out of trouble during the football offseason. And that's literally why you wound up playing basketball. But in the region where C. Grant grew up in New York, like it's basketball. And then whatever else you do is like, oh, oh, yeah, he wrestles. <laughs> Am I lying? Yeah, now, growing up in New York City, I mean, there's, there's a big difference between New York City and New York State. Uh, but yeah, then the city, you got to think about it. Um, there are no big time powerhouse colleges that have football teams. Um, the, the best big time college football team is like Syracuse. And that's, that's probably what a good six to eight hours away from New York city. You know what I mean? So in New York city it's basketball because you can cram them up in every, every housing development at almost every corner can have a basketball court. So in New York city, basketball is life. Yeah. That, I mean, New York city is where the, the, the milk crate culture comes from. Like we're going to find a way. Yeah. Yeah, if you don't, yeah, I'm gonna say this. Go I've been in a lot of different states, and I've trained a lot of different states. And when I was coaching high school, played in a lot of different states. And honest, honestly, New York is one of my New York City is one of my favorite cities on planet Earth. Because so I've heard a lot of Americans in Virginia will say, "Well, you know, I, I don't like to, New York; it's too fast paced, or people are rude." I love it. I think New York people are some of the most realest people you can meet, and I it reminds me of home, so I like that. Good, good, good. Okay, so Scotland, they keep it real. They keep it real in Scotland. I like to so think it's so. Like you can't step on nobody's shoes in Scotland, huh? <laughs> well, we don't wear, we don't wear Tim's, though. We, we wear kilts, not Tim's. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. 
Paul, I think I, I think you're gonna be a recurring guest on our show. <laughs> but now let's go ahead. Now that we're all now that we're all comfortable and and ready to talk frankly about the game that we love, um, Paul, are there any active players in the NBA that you have had the opportunity to work with? And when I say active, I mean they they actually played this season. I don't believe this season. The guys that um, the last guys that I did was was Henry Sims, who played for Philly for a little while and also for Phoenix. Yeah. He came out of Georgetown. He's over in Rome right now. Okay, I remember who he is. Um, I remember him. Yeah, and then yeah, I remember the uh, name too. Austin Freeman, who was at Georgetown as well. Yep. Uh, a lot of Georgetown players. Jason Clark, who was there. Most of these guys are overseas. Um, Quinn Quinn Cook, I worked with when he played AAU uh, for DC Assault, a powerhouse AAU program in the DC area. I uh, coached him for a year um, with the AAU. But that's the only NBA guys that I've worked with recently, I believe. Oh, Jarrell Benjamin as well, who played for Utah for a 30-day contract, but they went to China. Nice, nice. Okay. Um, and how long have you actually been in the training, the, the, the training well, I world? Moved, as far I moved as across here in 2005, and I started coaching at a, a Bishop O'Connell High School. And what it was is the coach was Joe Wooten, who was the son of the famous uh, DeMatha High School coach, Morgan Wooten, who just passed recently. Right. So Morgan Wooten was a mentor for me, and he actually helped me come across to the States because uh, I met him through a friend, and I came to work at his camp uh, for a summer. So I met his son, Joe Wooten, and I was his assistant coach on a varsity for six years. And for those six years, we were ranked in the top 10 in the country, like three of those years. We won two Virginia State championships on the private school side. We had Kendall Marshall, who played at UNC, mm-hmm. and then played in the league for a little okay. bit. So the Kendall familiar probably, with Kendall Marshall. Didn't he yeah. play point guard? Oh yeah, left hand, yeah, lefty point guard. Yep. Yeah, yeah, right. I remember Kendall. Uh, we had uh, Romello Trimble, who played at Maryland. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I remember Trimble yeah. because uh, Scott Van Pelt was heavy on him yeah. back in the sports yeah. at the time. Yeah, he's good. Like a minute, he loves saying his name. Miniature Chauncey Billups. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, or, mm. Vinny, or, Vinny, or Vinny Johnson. Um, so we, so I did, I did coach there. That was there for six years, and then I took a head coaching job at St James School in Maryland. I was a head actual coach for two years, and then just kind of life got in the way. I went through a divorce, stuff like that. So I kind of took a break from the game, and then I kind of found myself training a lot of the players that I had trained, I played, trained through AAU and high school. And all of a sudden, I was training like forty kids every two weeks, something like that. And so I just started a business out of it. Wow. So really, two thousand two thousand five when I came here, but I've done the training side for about five. Still there, Hello, Jeff? Paul? Yep, yeah, still here, yeah. Okay. Yep. Paul? Okay. Pardon me, pardon me. Um, all right, so now we have we have a, a good background of your involvement in the game, how you come to love it. And so as far as when it comes to training basketball players, do you have a preference? Do you like working with frontcourt players or backcourt players? I'm the backcourt. I'm a huge point guard guy. I, what I do a lot of my training is I'm, I'm very detailed, and that's how I kind of separate myself because I'm not – I was never really a player. You know, I, I just was, just loved the game, loved being around it, played as much as I could. But learned very early I was going to be a better coach than a player. Mm. So for me, I love being detailed. So guards are my thing because I do a lot of film work with players and I really try and teach the okay, IQ great. side of the game as well. Okay, so you're, you're, you're heavy on not only hammering in the court fundamentals, but you're also heavy in making sure that they get the application of the mental fundamentals Absolutely. of being a guard in the game. Okay, that's great. So that means that, you know, basketball IQ is something that you've been able to diagnose and understand from, from early on. Um, who do you think, as far as in, in the current 
sphere of active basketball players. Who who would you consider to be some of your favorites when it comes to demonstrating their basketball IQ? It doesn't even have to be a, a guard. It could just be players that you, when you watch them, you appreciate their understanding. Yeah, of the I love watching Luka Doncic. I think his uh, that that kid was just was made to play basketball, and his IQ right now coming off the ball screen is is unbelievable. He he not only sees the help defender or the defender he beats, he sees the second guy rotating and the guy who fills to the corner. He just sees everything. Um, so I really love watching Luca play. He's one of my favorites. Um, Chris Paul, um, I love what he's done this season in terms of uh, taking mm. the OKC team that I think everyone kind of counted out. Um, didn't complete. Yeah, except oh, me. Really? Oh, except good for you. I know. I, you, did. I, I know. I'm gonna find a way to say that. <laughs> well, I'm good. Keep, keep going, Paul. You cooking uh, right now? So, you know, I, I like Chris Paul. Um, I'm a big Damon Lillard fan, even though I think I think there's a oh, lot yes. of problems in Portland. But I'm a big Damon Lillard fan as well. Uh, but Luca's probably my top guy right now. Okay. Um. So we'll we'll go through them one by one. Um. See, Grant, pick one of those players that you want to. Uh, talk let's about. go. Let's go with the um. Let's. I respect. Let's give Paul since we were, on we were different. Uh, Smart Alex and myself were different when it comes to Oklahoma City's finish. I thought they were going to be down in the dumps, but he ta- he was Me saying too. that because of Chris Paul, and now Chris Paul's in the system and a set. And, and well, no, and Billy Donovan to the coach. When we keep it quiet, I'm quiet. I'm quiet. You know what I mean? Um, yes, coaching, coaching does matter. <laughs> we definitely know we can all attest to that as how important coaching is, but also the fact that. Chris Paul is like that coach on the court, and he brings the best out of his players. If you every every team that he goes to tends to be on the winning, the plus five hundred side, you know. Um, so when he when he, initially when they got traded, I was like, nah, they're not going to do nothing. Chris Paul is going to want to get out of it. But yep. my my partner, he was saying, my you know the co-host Alex, Alex was saying, nah, Chris Paul if he stays. I think everybody was kind of like thinking that Chris Paul wasn't going to be, that wasn't going to be his final destination for the season. But I Agreed. think that being Agreed. that uh, fact that he, he kind of locked in and dialed in and wanted to help that, that team and the young guys build up and become, you know, stars in the NBA, have a career in the NBA. Um, it just shows that, that, that winning is contagious, that winning mindset. So, yeah, I mean, I like Chris Paul because everybody around him has gotten a lot smarter when it comes to making certain plays, the decision-making. And he can still get you a tough basket if you need it. Uh, yeah, here's my quick take on Chris Paul, though. I think there are, like, maybe a class of, like, 10 guys left in the NBA who, no matter where they go, no matter what the coaching style is, no matter what type of fan base, no matter what the atmosphere in the arena is, they play their way and the team absorbs it. And I think CP3 is one of those guys. He's so surgical that when he brought that surgical edge to Houston, it kind of like worked against him because they were so much more free flowing. So he was trying to bring his medicinal approach to basketball to them to make those situations when they were close, be ones where they were actually strong and it wound up working against them because he's so adamant and so fierce and so demonstrative about what he thinks should be done. Whereas you take that same style and that same mentality to Oklahoma City, and like you said, C. Grant, he had all those young pups who they just want to learn how to win. So they're willing to just follow his lead. But, um, yeah, that, that's really all I wanted to say. Please continue. You know, I, I like your terminology in surgical because when Chris Paul was at LA Clippers and they didn't win, I mean, number there's a lot of reasons, obviously, they didn't win, and it's mostly to do with the front court. 
But with those guys, I was like, ah, Chris Paul is not there. He's not one of those. He's not one of those elite guys for me. He's not there. Houston, I saw a little something different, but saw him getting older. But then in Oklahoma City, I'm the complete same way as C. Grant. I was like, man, he's going to try and get out of there, or he's not going to play. He's going to he's going to pull an Andre Iguodala. And then you're right. What what he's done, Billy Donovan's a lot to do with that. But he's he's enabled his point guard. But he's just been phenomenal. And there's that old saying that that you are only good a player is who you make who you make around you good, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, whoever you make better, yep. um, or however, however the saying goes. And that's exactly what he's done. Yeah, because I find it hilarious because a friend of mine, one of one of one of our followers, he pointed out to me when I I did a um, who do you guys think is coach of the year post, and I nominated I said coach and GM, and I nominated Presty and um, Billy Donovan, and they were like, well, you can't nominate Presty, and I'm like, well, why can't I? I mean, Presty's got a great track record. He was like, well, Presty drafted the same guy five years in a row, and then I went back and looked, and he's drafted nothing but two way wings that can three and D since he grabbed <laughs> Roberson. So he literally has a cachet of three and D guys who either got hurt, didn't play to their potential, or have yet to realize their potential. And that's what C. Grant literally, I mean, not C. Grant, but Chris Paul walked into. He walked into, if we go into their starting five, he's got Danilo Gallinari, who we all know his, Super his repertoire, yeah. his skill set. And then you've got Steven Adams, who literally grew up and became a basketball player before our eyes with, with the Oklahoma City Thunder. I was watching old Thunder games, and there were literally times where Back in his first two years, he would get the ball, get the ball two feet from the rim, and kick it out yeah, yeah. with no defender in front of him. And now, if you give him the ball anywhere in the paint, it's going to be a finish or it's going to be a trip to the free throw he, line. He's so, a rich man's Luke Longley, but he's stronger and more aggressive than Luke Absolutely. Longley ever was, Absolutely. man. Like, like Luke Longley was one of those guys where I felt like he would have to look in the stands and see somebody like slapping his wife <laughs> for you to get him to be worked up enough to like really like. Yeah. Like honestly, like it took the New York Knicks for you to realize that Luke Longley wasn't gonna always be pushed around. You know what I'm saying? There's certain guys who they just bring it every night, and I just think that New New Zealand that 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 Aussie that that energy that he has coming from that region of the world has manifested itself so well in the NBA. You, know, um, when you, when you guys said um, was, when Steve Adams when he was two feet from the basket, you know he couldn't score. We would a bit uh, easier way to say that would just be Charles Smith in the playoffs. Oh, right? wait oh. a minute! So, is it... <laughs> I love this guy. I love Yo, this guy. wow, wow! <laughs> see, see, no love for the Knicks. Paul, that's what the title of this episode. No Paul, love for the Knicks. I'm... <laughs> Paul, I'm gonna just make it clear. Anytime you make any reference to anything that did not happen well for the New York Knicks, wow. you are sending a shot mm-hmm. to see Grand that he will oh never heal. Oh my heal gosh! From. Oh my gosh! Uh, I mean, put it put it this way. Put it this way, though. The Knicks are undefeated. Since wow, that's, true. that's, that's what we're doing. That's, that's what we're doing. Okay. <laughs> okay. You know what? It's all good. It's all good. All right. Moving along to the to to the player that he said was his favorite, and I'm glad he brought him up. We're not going to mention the third guy because we have so much more that we could talk about. But Luka Doncic, you said and you pointed out that he has he has what I call um, see ahead vision. Yep. So he can see a play unfolding and not only be prepared to make the first option happen, but also make the second and third options happen. And the only other guy I've ever seen be able to do that mid-interpretation of a pick and roll early on was LeBron James. Mm-hmm. Now everybody's doing it. Trey Young has got that one-handed hook pass that he throws with yeah. the left yep. hand yep. and the right hand. Um 
who else has it? Our boy uh, John Morant, mm-hmm. he has that phenomenal pass. Like that one-handed hook pass is the new wave in the NBA. And if you can yeah. get that down with accuracy, then you probably are going to get eight to twelve minutes a game as a point guard in the NBA because that's that's the pass that seems to always be available. Everybody seems to hard hedge so that you can't go to the guy that's immediately dropping off the pick and you have to be able to see one of your shooters. But Luka Doncic makes that play, and then he also makes that go-ahead play that leads to the alley-oop. And I guess because he's been running the Spain pick and roll so long, he knows that those options are there. But like you said, he's got some of the best court vision I've ever seen for somebody to come into the NBA, you know, and not be an American player. Absolutely. So, and in Spain, is, Europe is all about the pick and roll. So he's been on that team since he was 16 years mm-hmm. old in Spain. So he's been doing this for a long, long time. I think I read that he left home at 13, 14 years old and went to the academy. And he's basically there full time. I mean, he was made for this. I think his mom and dad were both pros. He was. He was. Yeah, made they for this said. Moment. Imagine getting drafted, and you're the league MVP of the league. You you left. Yeah, but that's what I was about that to say. Luka that was Luka Doncic. I watched him play in, uh, against the Wizards, and the Wizards. You know, obviously that's a different story together. But they were playing the Mavericks, and KP wasn't playing. I think it was the first. I forget when it was, but he wasn't playing. And the Knicks, the, not the Knicks, sorry, the Wizards were up by like eight points. There was four minutes to go. And Luca was just going to, it almost seemed like he was just going to go on half speed. Those last four minutes, he turned it on and he was unstoppable. He was just, he was finding guys like you're playing 2K. Like he was finding them at the opposite end of the floor, spotting up in the corner. And we were pretty close to the court. I couldn't believe how big he was. He was like every bit 6'7", six, 6'8". Yeah, he's got icon pass and turn it on. Yeah, all game, all game. He, he, he doesn't get sped up. He doesn't. That, that's what I love. He's yeah, points. Yeah, yeah. Like nothing speeds him up. They put a bigger, a bigger how, guy. He goes by a smaller guy to kind of rough him up. Doesn't bother him. How how do you as a trainer interpret or or see or even come to understand how easy he makes it looks when he basket drives? Because let's just be real, his dribble repertoire, it's leagues below a Kyrie Irving. Absolutely. But his ball control is right up there with Kyrie Irving. With the limited amount of moves that he has, he's always in control. How is it that a player who doesn't have that much of a repertoire but just has the skill is able to get to the paint so easily? What do you think is the, 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 the facet of his game that makes it possible for him? I think it's a couple of things. I think it's understanding timing. And then because he's a big guy, I think he understands how to use his body for contact. Like, if you watch, he makes contact with the defender before they make contact with him. And he's doing that so he knows where they are. So he doesn't have to compete with their athletic ability. If he puts his weight on them first, they can't jump as high or lean into his kind of frame. He can go where he wants to go. He also, even though he's not that quick, he does have a burst of speed when he decides Mm -hmm. to go. Yeah, I definitely, yeah. I definitely agree with those points. You brought up something also interesting that I wanted to get into. Um, as a trainer, were you always teaching the crab engage dribble to your guards, or was that something that has just become like the the new wave lately? I've, because everybody does it. Yeah, now. I've been teaching that ever since I started. Uh, Joe Wooten, the guy that I worked for at Bishop O'Connell High School, he used to teach that to his guys, um, freshman, you know, JV varsity. So it's something I've always piggybacked on. And obviously myself, when I played, I was slower and I'm, I'm only six feet tall. But it's like I was all about making contact first. So I'd bring the pads out and teach players how to make contact. Because a lot of players, you know, you look at Allen Iverson days, they're trying to make contact when you're already in the air. 
and that takes some mm-hmm. that takes someone unbelievable like Iverson to do with that body control. That's what Melo Trimble was really good at. His body control was so good. So I teach guys to try and make that contact on the way up. And I think that I think that that probably works for the upper percentile of people because. Like you said, you're speaking of Allen Iverson, who's arguably one of the top five scorers ever in basketball history. He honestly didn't try to score, like you said, until after he made contact with the defender. So he would jump with the protection mentality of, all right, I know I'm going to hit this guy, so let me have the ball in a way so that once I take that hit, I can recoil, pump my shoulders, and create some sort of release that would allow the ball to get to the rim where he is going to the free throw line to shoot a shooting foul or he's getting, you know, a foul to get them closer to the bonus. And I don't think nowadays you can do that because the science of defending has changed so much. A lot of the guys that you jump at, they already got their hands straight up in the air because of verticality. So now you do have to essentially be prepared to have a guy on you and know where he's at before you make your shot move because he's already prepared to block it if you're not making physical contact with him. So I think it's a very good point, but... I just realized, or it seemed to see Graham. How about you noticing? Did you notice like the crab dribble engaged defender? I think Chauncey was the first guy I saw doing it a lot because they used to run that that high pick and roll with him mm-hmm. and Sheed. Um, and if Rip didn't come off that yeah. curl, yeah, Chauncey yeah. had to keep the ball. So he would so he would have that defender on his left hip, and he would be kind of like near the free throw line, deciding on whether or not he wanted to take a pull up, or if he had enough room to either give it to Sheed or Ben. But now everybody's doing it. So I just started to notice, like, hey, this move is something that everybody was doing or just started doing. So is that something that was always trained? Because I remember growing up being taught my fundamentals. That was not part of it at all. Like, we never got taught the crab dribble. We never got taught how to engage a defender, how to hold, you know, how to hip hold a defender, any of that type of stuff. So it all seems like new era basketball teaching. I was just curious as to how long it's been in the the, the teaching cycle. Yeah, and I think, you know, the the training game is a very copycat game. You know, if one of these top trainer guys or whoever it may be does it and starts preaching it or you see a pro do it or they highlight a pro doing it, then everybody kind of jumps on it and swears by it and says they've been doing it for years. So it is a copycat game. So it it's probably is what you're seeing. You're probably seeing a lot of people yeah. just copying other people. And how about, how about some of the fads? Like, um, for instance, I grew up reading that Jason Williams, White Chocolate, he grew up learning how to dribble by being in his garage with the lights off. I heard that Steve Nash worked on his dribble using a tennis ball. Um, chairs are something that I always saw growing up. That was something that I was trained with. And Kyrie, the Kyrie put the, the, the basketballs in the, the plastic bags as well to, lose, to kind of loose the grip. Kyrie is not human. <laughs> when it comes to dribbling a basketball, like I, I, there's so many things I can say about Kyrie Irving as a basketball player that irk my soul, but his ball control is just... it's it's. Well, I, one thing I would say also is, too is, is nowadays with the spacing that the NBA has, it allows you to see some of these different variations of moves because in a game when we were all growing up, it was more so catered to having a big man in the post, which kind of keeps the, the, the paint area congested. So it's a little harder to, to do some of these moves because you always have an extra help defender right there. So now with everything spaced out, you're that's allowed to see true. some of these moves develop. And actually, that's why you say it's a copycat league because – you see the effectiveness of some of these moves now where before when you got two to three big men in the paint, some of these moves you, you, could, you couldn't really get off because you didn't have the space to do so. Because by that time it was decision-making time, and most people were trained, by the time you get to the free throw line, you either have to pass it or shoot it. 
You know, if you keep if you have it any if you keep the ball past the free throw line, you need to take it up and score. You know, and, and never leave your feet to dribble. But when you have that space and it's it it becomes a uh, a game where you start seeing a variety of moves that have to be made because you now get past your man or you have to really kick it out to that shooter to allow that space to happen. So or you have to be able to do both. You have to be able to penetrate yeah. in order to generate the kick. Because a lot of what these guards are being trained to do, and I'm pretty sure Paul can attest to this, is they're not driving the score. They're driving to attract defenders or to make people move. So a lot of their movements aren't necessarily predicated on actually finishing at the basket or, or taking a shot. A lot of guards are just being trained to tilt the defense. Um, Paul, I wanted to ask you, for everyone that's you know suffering from cabin fever, have love of the game, got kids, are there like maybe two or three activities you could give them that they could do in the comfort of their home and be safe to continue to allow, you know, their kids who may maybe want to work on their game or even just a guy who listens to our podcast and is like, man, I want to do something basketball related besides play 2K all day. What can I do at home that can give me, you know, a little bit of a feel? I think the one thing you can do, and a lot of people are doing this right now, is you can do stationary ball handling drills. So all you need is one ball. You can also add two balls. And you don't even need cones. You can use a shoe or a book or whatever, maybe just just two small objects. And you can do some stationary ball handling drills. And that's just basically, you know, being in a low balance stance, working on high dribble, low dribble, crossovers behind the back, all kind of like Jason Williams. And then you can also look at things like a killer crossover or an in and out dribble where you're, you're not really you're only moving about maybe two, three feet, something like that. But you're working on your speed of dribble, your control of dribble and your strength of dribble. You can also do, you know, get a tennis ball and just toss it against the wall or the garage door or outside wherever, you know, make a crossover, catch it with the opposite hand. Uh, Myself and many other trainers, we post a lot of drills on our pages. And actually, this Saturday, I'm doing a free online in-home ball handling clinic through Zoom. And I advertised it today and I already have 75 people signed up. Now, Make sure you get that information to see oh, Grant. Yeah. So we'll post it in the link when we drop the. Uh, well, the dude, I think Zoom only takes up to a hundred people, but there's a there's, a, there's an yeah. option because I'm using that for my son's school. Yeah, so I think I can. There's another option where I can pay a little extra and it becomes a lot larger. So I may have to do that because it's only been advertised for about seven, six or seven hours, and we're already at seven, like seventy-five people. So, and I, I, what I want to do is maybe every, hopefully every three days, do a little ball handling routine like. Uh, Saturday I'm planning on doing some just um, as I said before kind of strength of dribble speed of dribble and I want to introduce the killer crossover as well nice nice okay so now it's time for the negativity it's time for the negativity <laughs> I've held back long enough. so negativity time here we come Paul can you name some players that we would understand or respect or, or just call great that you would say exhibit some bad basketball habits yeah I'd, I'd be more than happy to do that <laughs> Uh, save the best one for gotcha. last. Save the best one for last. Um, got, well, I mean, do you, want, do you want me to say over who, who I think is maybe overrated or gets more more credit than they deserve? Is that what you're looking for? We can do that, and then we could, like I said, we and then we'll actually expound on what facets of what they do makes you you know feel that way about them. Because I'm pretty sure it's going to be guys that even me and C. Grand think are great and probably don't see too much in a negative light, and probably a lot of our listeners. Well, let me, let me flip it before you start that. One guy I, I left out when you said good players, a guy who I think is going to be really, really good, and I've thought this since day one, is Lonzo Ball. I really? Think the, the Pelicans. Mm-hmm. I think that I'm glad he's out of L.A. 
I think his court vision is just is is up there with Luca. Um, it's up there with some of the best guys right now. I think he's going to be so. so I agree. Good. I agree. I agree. I think he sees things two, three, sometimes even four passes away. Yeah, he's got he's got a lot to work and, on. Obviously, his jump shot, being consistent, being a stronger, you know, mm-hmm. one ball defender, and a, a lot of different things. But I think he, I think he's a special kind of player. And if you put him in a system, if you put him in Houston right now, they would that would just excel them. You would set them on fire. It'd be, they'd be it just make them so much better. Do you take Westbrook out of that equation? Is that a swap, or you? Just uh, I don't think you could swap it. them. I think with contract wise, but I think if you added them to that mix, it would just it would make them it would really excel them. I think he's the type of player. Okay, so we could go. So we could go with. Uh, you think uh, um, Westbrook, Zoe, Harden, because remember you can slot Zoe at the two or three. He's that big. He's six yep. six. So with Houston playing small, position is really not of any. I mean, come on, PJ Tucker is like I don't even think he's taller than Jordan He's playing center for them. So I don't think height is really an issue when you talk about putting a guy like him in Houston. And the reason why I asked, do you swap him? And it's not even about the contract. It's just about from a basketball perspective. Do you think him, Westbrook, Harden, and two other players is, is a viable basketball offense? I, I'm, I'm, I, love the, I love the fact they're trying small ball. I love anybody. It's kind of like the money ball situation with the Brad Pitt movie where you take a risk, take a risk mm-hmm. on something and you make it work no matter what. I don't think that's going to work. I just don't. I think that when they come up against uh, uh, LA Lakers or anybody with some height and some length and some inside scoring, they're going to struggle. Um, Westbrook, I like Westbrook as a competitor. I don't think he makes teams better than he's on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that's fair. That's fair. I, I mean, I think what they had to do, and it, the proof is in the pudding, if you have to let go of a guy like Capella, now mind you, the stats and the analytics supported the fact that they were not elite with him on the floor. So, okay, you can always use stats to paint whatever picture you want to justify a basketball move. I felt like from a basketball team perspective, they were better having Capella on the roster. But I do see how if you remove Capella from the equation and you all of a sudden go into the top five or points in the paint without a legitimate sitter, how you could kind of like, you know, weigh both arguments. So I see it. But again, the losses, they point out exactly what, you, what, what you're saying, that the moment you, you, you come across a team with bigs that actually know how to use them, you're going to suffer. And Houston has gotten their, their boat rocked every time they played a team with any type of legitimate big man activity. I mean, they, they, they still even lost to Utah, and I don't consider yeah, yeah. Rudy Gobert a big man. Yeah. Well, and staying on, staying on Houston, I'm a huge James Harden fan. I think he's – what D'Antoni did to him, in terms of making him the point guard, moving him there. Because I remember he was coming off like he was one of the league's top scorer, and then he announced mm-hmm. he was going to be point guard the next year. I was like, wow, that's bold. But then all of a sudden, you know, he was MVP quality. I think James Harden is almost like – he's, no, he's not Michael Jordan, but he's going through what Michael Jordan went through before Phil finally convinced him to, go, to, to, be, to share the ball more, to be part of an offense. Teams right now are happy with Harden – getting 50 points and losing mm-hmm. the game. They're happy with that. And I think that until he changes that, he's never going to be a title. Yeah, that, that's fair. That's fair because I agree with that. I was too. just going to say that what we see I, from James Harden is the fact that he's not allowing his teammates to get any type of rhythm. So when he finally needs their help, they're not in any position to help him. The only person that, the only person that tries to help him Absolutely. is Westbrook, but it's only until recently that Westbrook was realizing, I need to stop shooting. I need to drive to the basket and be my be my Oklahoma, my true self. 
because I think when he first got to Houston, he tried to be somebody he wasn't. I mean, yes, he played aggressive and his level of intensity was always through the roof. But he's when you first got on Houston, he was still trying to figure it out. Okay, do I do I do I try to shoot this jumper? Because we all know Westbrook were going ninety miles an hour and then stopping at the free throw line or the elbow and hitting an elbow jump shot or going to the basket and jumping over somebody to dunk it. But when he first got to Houston, it was just like ah, everything hit the brakes and he was just not trying to he was trying to figure it out. But now you see him a lot more aggressive. But I definitely agree with you guys with Harden not being trusting his teammates more enough to where I, if I need you. You didn't touch the ball one time the whole game. I can't expect you to hit the game winner. Exactly. Like I said, like I said, I think that I think that, and I, I alluded to this before with without Paul being on the podcast. I think James mm-hmm. Harden's been put in that Iverson position in a league where the Iverson position is not viable. It was barely viable when I, Iverson dragged them to the finals, and he was scoring thirty points a game, and he had four other defenders, and all they were doing was allowing him to come off screens until he, you know, shot forty-five times. I remember uh, in this era. Yeah, I remember. Like, these, I remember he said, ahead. "You know, bring me Chris, get me Chris Webber, and I'll get you a championship." Chris, <laughs> Chris Webber came. Chris Webber never, never yeah. saw the ball. <laughs> But Chris Webber wasn't wasn't Chris Webber when he came to Philadelphia. Absolutely. This was post micro fracture. I'm forever gonna be mentally traumatized by what the Lakers and the North Carolina Tar Heels and the um, Duke Blue Devils did to me in my career, Chris Webber. So I I love Chris Webber, the player. I always loved his talent. I was a Fab Five fan, but some of the things that he shows or has shown on a mental level have always allowed me to keep him at a certain you know a certain distance in regards to how much respect I can give to what he did on the court. He's definitely a Hall of Famer. I don't want to take anything away why from do, him. Why doesn't but... he get the – why isn't he in the upper echelon, though? I mean, I know, obviously, they didn't win championships. But for me, growing up, I mean, I thought he was, like, one of the top power forwards there, there, there was at the time. I remember the way he used to pass the basketball. He used to hit the 18-footer. And why is he not considered one of the greats? Because he played with Vladi Divac, Doug Christie, and Peja Stojakovic. In Sacramento, he didn't play with Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal, and he had an opportunity to play with Shaquille O'Neal when he got drafted. And Shaquille O'Neal moved away from him. Shaquille O'Neal asked for Penny Hardaway. He said, "Chris Webber's great. That's a dope pick, but bring me Penny. I played with him when we were shooting blue chips, and I won him. The Orlando Magic gave it to him. Chris Webber goes to Golden State as a rookie, and somehow gets into an argument with Don Nelson and winds up. He said." He said, either Dawn goes or you trade me. He yeah, was on the next yeah, that, bus. that was crazy. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and they traded yeah. him to the Wizards. Yes. And at the time, the Wizards may as well have been the Clippers or the – I don't even want to say the Grizzlies because the Grizzlies are good now, but you guys get the point. Like, going to Washington at that mm. time was not a good look for him. So mm-hmm. – and then he played with Rasheed Wallace. Jawan Howard. And then, you know, the years that he had in Washington, yeah, the years that he had in Washington, they were kind of dark and gloomy. The team, what they had one year where they lost to the Bulls twice was two years in a row. They played the Bulls during the Bulls' second three first round. And I think they played them in yeah. the, um, you know, the first round of the playoffs, and they got bounced. They got bounced. And then he gets to Sacramento, and he literally is a big part of, you know, one of the biggest turnarounds in, in, in the basketball city history. Because nobody knew anything about what Sacramento did. Like before Chris Webber got there, the only person you could tell me or I could tell you played for the Kings that Mitch I knew Richmond, about yeah. was Kenny Smith. Mitch Richmond. Mitch Richmond too. Oh, and Mitch Richmond. And of course Mitch Richmond. I don't want to take anything away from, from Money Mitch, but the reason why I say Kenny Smith is because he was always on TV. 
And they would show his highlights and you would see him in that powder blue Kings uniform that they, you know, they bring back for throwback nights. That was my like, OK, these are the Kings memories, but actual players actively competing for a ship, None of that was even in my, you know, scope. So Chris Webber gets there and honestly, Rick Adelman gets all the credit because he brings that corner offense there. And it suits all the things that Chris Webber is really good at doing, along with Vladi Divac, allowing them to do a lot of high post entry, a lot of high low stuff, a lot of curling off of things. And that's where we got to see that Chris Webber had way more skills than he had been allowed to manifest in other places. And then mm-hmm. yeah. from there, where does he go? To Philadelphia, Philadelphia I think? Yes. Detroit, I think and so. then to Detroit? Yeah. Or was it, it was Philadelphia? Philly, Detroit. then Detroit, yeah. Let me let, let me right. let me so say go- where I lost love for the Wizards. I tried really hard. <laughs> I tried really hard. <laughs> but this, this is when I lost love for them, right? When they had, I forget the, the draft where James Harden was at 2013. I don't know when it was. But I remember 2008. I don't know. But it was that it was that draft, and they had the fifth pick. It was Steph Curry's draft, and Ernie Grunfield or whoever it was said, "There's no one in the draft with the fifth pick." They can help us. So they, they traded the pick, I think, to Minnesota, okay. maybe. And I think they drafted Johnny Flynn. Oh, we um, all did. Who mm-hmm. I loved in college, by the way. And and, and then he got um, – and then in their place, he got Mike Miller and one of the yeah. Villanova okay. guys, maybe Randy Foy, maybe. And none of, none of those guys – both wow. of those guys left in the offseason. And that draft was a really good draft. Obviously, you know, Steph Curry was available. There was other players. But, I mean, Ricky Rubio, there was so many other players who could have gone. And he said, there's nobody that can help us in the draft. And they were trading for those two veterans. I was like, and this is when LeBron was, was getting hot. I was like, mm-hmm. this is it. I'm done. I'm done. And never, never, never so, you, so you tapped out on the Wizards kind of, kind of, I don't want to say kind of, but. Okay, so the draft he's talking about, ladies and gentlemen, this is the 2009 NBA draft where Blake Griffin goes yeah. first. Harden went third, Rubio went fifth, Tyreek Evans, who was the rookie of the mm-hmm. year, ironically, went fourth to Sacramento, Johnny Flynn goes sixth, and they Stephen had, Curry they, goes yeah. seventh. Yeah, yeah, and they, you said right. the Wizards had the five in this draft? Washington. Yeah. I'm looking at it now. It says uh, the, the Timberwolves got that pick, the fifth pick from Washington Wizards. <clears throat> That's right. So let's go over some of the guys real quick that the Wizards flubbed on. <clears throat> Obviously, we know they flubbed on not getting Steph Curry. They could also have mm-hmm. had DeMar DeRozan, yep. J. Rue Holiday. They could have even had Jeff Teague. Right. Um, who else is in that draft? That's pretty much it, but that's still – like, and, you know, hindsight of the draft is twenty twenty. but Ernie Grunfield yeah. used, to, yeah, oh, used to destroy oh, the Knicks as a member of their front office. So, so him, him swinging and missing on a draft is not something that guys like me and Chris are, are unfamiliar with. Like, there's just certain guys we know that, like, if you work for the Knicks and this is your draft history, we know what you're going to do when you go to the next team you go to. So him, <laughs> Scott Layden, the only guy who ever left New York and you could trust so in the draft Walsh? was Isaiah Thomas. I yeah. He actually he drafted uh, – Oh, God. Now you got Walsh me thinking. I, they didn't have – have, right. Well, remember, that's when the Knicks were actually – I don't even know if they had they draft picks when he was, when he was with, in, Donnie Walsh. with the Knicks. Well, that's a long I mean, time ago. That's a long time ago. <laughs> that was that was five, five to seven years ago. Because here's the thing, Phil gets credit for drafting Porzingis, and he also gets credit mm-hmm. for drafting Nilaklina or Nikla- however you pronounce his name. I'm just not gonna. Yeah, he, he, that, uh, yeah, he was, I remember they said he was supposed to be the next Tony Parker, or his biggest upside was Tony Parker esque. He just hasn't. I don't know if he, he hasn't found his rhythm, or I don't know. He hasn't been too impressive. 
I think the problem is that he doesn't have the courage to exhibit NBA range because I was talking to C. Grant about this. I even sent him an article that came from B-Ball Breakdown where they were showcasing how well he had performed in the Worlds that year. And he had looked like he was ready to take his coat off and embrace, you know, who he should be. Yeah. And then the season started and he was under the bench. Under the bench. And you're under the bench for a guy like Fisdale on a team that's got 98 power forwards and you don't speak English. <laughs> I mean... And you, and you don't speak English. So I can understand him going into, like, a depression. Like, I really don't hold much against him. And then you see a guy like Alfred Payton. Alfred Payton start above you. Yeah. You see Dennis Smith Jr., who was a guy that everybody in New York originally wanted us to draft, but instead we went and got I Porzingis. remember watching the game so, where Luca, uh, Dennis Smith Jr. took the game-winning shot, and Luca just stood and looked at him. Oh, and he shook his head, yes, and Smith missed yeah. a contested three off bounds. And I, yeah. I remember watching that game, and I, yep. that went viral. And I, yeah, and I said he's gone, he's gone because Mark Cuban, he knows that he can find success, and I wouldn't say Dallas is a small market, but he knows he can find success with a mm. European standard, a horse, you know. So you know, Dirk, Dirk, uh, 2.0. So he takes. So <laughs> Dennis Smith's gone, and Dennis Smith needs a jump shot. He's not that skilled. He's super athletic. He's obviously got the drive. Um, he's fun to watch. He's crafty. He's a great player. But for me, he just doesn't seem to have the basketball IQ of someone like Luca, and I think Luca understood that early. Okay, so now we we had started to lead you to where we wanted to go, so I'm gonna bring us back there. So we mentioned one guy. Let's just go to the ah! elephant in the room. <clears throat> there is there there is a future Hall of Famer. <laughs> There's a future Hall of Famer that has caught your eye because you have respect for his basketball talent, but his basketball IQ and team play you you find questionable. And I'm speaking of one Carmelo Anthony. Can you speak to us about the things you see in Carmelo Anthony that irk your soul? Or um, I talking about trends. I couldn't stand everyone saying he should be in the league. He's better than this guy. He's better than that guy. And my thing, and we get it. You know, the common fans. There's more to it than being the most skilled guy. You, oh, we were saying that too. Yeah, you, we were you saying that too. You got to make it with a team. You gotta, um, you gotta play defense. You gotta be part of it. You gotta sacrifice for your role, and you've gotta be supremely talented as well. When Carmelo Anthony was in New York, I wasn't a fan because I was like, all he does is score, and they lose. And to me, he's a guy that doesn't make others better. He rebounds really well. He's <coughs> he's fell in love with the three, but he's a he's a he's a streaky shooter. He's a great mm-hmm. scorer, and I remember on the Olympic team, uh, whatever year it was, he was like the best scorer in the world at that time. Um, he, he was, he yeah, was, because he was allowed to take open 21 footers, which are long twos. Yep. And for me, so I, in New York, I just didn't see it. And Amari Stoudemire, when he came to New York the year before or the half a season before, I was like, he's ready to turn his franchise around. When Carmelo came, mm-hmm. Stoudemire just disappeared. I know he got hurt, well, let's, but before he got hurt, he just disappeared. And to me, that was the mellow thing. That was, that was mellow coming in there and, and, you can't blame it all on him. Well, let me I just defend him to that better. aspect, right? Because what you're saying is some is true, right? When when Amari got to New York, he the Knicks took off. They, you know, yeah. But but he with that and the sad part about it for that first year, he looked like every bit of that money that he was paid for the first year <laughs> until Carmelo got there. But remember when they yep. unfortunately, and this is where Donnie Walsh came in. We all everybody knew Carmelo wanted to go to the Knicks because he voiced his opinion, not wanting. This no, is no, Jim no, no, but I'm this saying Donnie, Donnie Walsh didn't want to trade for Carmelo during the season because everybody Carmelo announced to the world that he wanted to get out of Denver. 
And you just go wait till the season's over and everybody's so when James Dolan did was step over that. Donnie Walsh and completely gut that team to get Carmelo. And by gutting that team, the way they were playing their system, Omari is great with pick and roll in this space. You know, that way he can drive to dump, drive to the basket, accelerate, explode, and he can create from the free throw line down. But when you draw when you draw in a person like Carmelo, who kind of feasts Correct. in that same type of area, now Amari's stuck. And now you don't have any shooting or any other plays that people can say, well, I got to stick with this guy. You know what I mean? They did their best. Here's my thing. Yeah, you're right. And, and you're right. There's probably some truth to that. I, I do believe that. And not to sidetrack too much, but Amari is also a product of Steve Nash yeah, and yeah. D'Antoni got that $100 million. Because when he was with Steve Nash... He he made everything that that Sudermar was great at. He put it on the on, on the mantle. Oh, no, Steve you know, he really Steve, made it happen. Steve Nash like, got a lot. He of really set the table. I agree with you. Yes, uh, it was the, the yes. Matrix as well, and it's very similar to. I want to talk about this guy, um, Deron Williams from Utah to Brooklyn. Everyone said, "Oh mm. man, he was the man in Brooklyn." Yes, because you know who he played for. One of the best coaches in the history mm. of the NBA, Jerry Sloan. And Jerry Sloan made yeah. him and Carlos Boozer a lot of damn money. But obviously, yes. the, obviously he envisioned the Stockton Malone. Deron Williams had a, yeah, lot, yeah. a lot different offensively than Stockton. And I think Deron realized that and wanted to go elsewhere. I don't blame him for that. He got that big $90 million deal from Brooklyn mm. and that Russian millionaire was just giving money away like candy. Um, and then, you know, after that, Prokhorov. He, he just kind of he, he he, he deteriorated. And I think a lot of that was it's, it's all about the system that you're in. It's all about who you play with. Agreed. So you see, so your points is, are probably right about the gutting the team to get mellow. But I'm getting back to the point. Ah. See, Grant knows I'm going to go here. Denver Nuggets, right now. I could I could be off on my stats, right? So check them out for me. I remember when Mellow was with the Nuggets. I'm going to list some players for you. Some of his teammates: Chauncey oh, no. Billups. He's about to bury Mark Chauncey Billups, right? Won a championship with the Pistons a couple of years later. A couple of years prior. Allen Iverson had been to the prior. prior, yeah, well, prior, prior. prior. Had been to the finals, okay, with his own team. I get it, different time. Marcus. Seven time Eastern Conference Finals. There you go. I'm sorry. <laughs> Marcus, Com- Marcus Camby, one of my favorite Knicks, by the way, mm-hmm. on that Knicks team with Larry Johnson and Spreewell, gets to the no, uh, championship. Uh, right? Marcus the NBA yes, championship. Yes. Is that yes, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah because he played against the he played with the Knicks when they can't be played for a championship. Can't be played for a championship. He played against the Spurs, and the, so he goes there. He goes right. there. But he's six man. J.R. Smith, but he was really young, and he went to the yeah. But he he went obviously one with LeBron championships. <laughs> then you've got Kenyon Martin, who's an absolute stud in in that era. He would he would he would famine today. By the way, he'd starve in today's game. Kenyon Martin. Yeah, right. Kenyon Martin has no place in today's None. NBA. So he, um, when he was there, he went to the mm-hmm. championship finals yeah, yeah. with uh, Jason Kidd uh, with New Jersey. And you go get you Twice. guys at like Andre Miller, um, uh, Kleiser, no, no, Spanish or Mexican uh, guy. Then it's Kleiser, Kleiser. They have yeah, Fernandez. Did they, they have Rudy Fernandez? Um, he was. He was. Um, was it Kleiser for the Nuggets? Actually, I, I think so. For the Nuggets, he. They had did they have Rudy Fernandez there for a while before he wound up going to Portland? Because remember he left the league because he wasn't getting enough playing time. And I think that was because Might of his be. time in Portland. But I think he started in Denver at first. Listen, that Nuggets roster, then I mean, I think even was Earl Boykins a part of it? Like, like Andrew Miller. Miller. They had Birdman. So my point is Yep. 
Yep. So my point yes. is, all these guys, whether they be role players or B guys, whatever, they've all had success elsewhere in a good four or five, mm-hmm. four or five radius around that team. So for me, I'm like, if Melo's truly that guy, if he's that guy that can, a class A guy, he doesn't do it there. He doesn't do it in a time frame where these guys could have been something special. My only argument to counter what you're saying, Paul, is there's a certain guy who really gets buried when it gets discussed when it comes to Melo and his shortcomings, and, and that's George yeah. Carl. His relationship with George Carl and a lot of players who played on that Denver team, in retrospect, they've all spoken about it. They hated him. You've got, you've got a roster full of guys who are basically being led by a person that they want nothing to do with. And it's evidence that there had to be some validity to it because George Carl started the trend <laughs> of winning coach of the year and getting fired the whole season. <laughs> and De- DeMarcus, yeah. Cus- DeMarcus yeah. Cousins, I believe, hated them in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. Um, Correct. And, I, and so, I did, read, so did Rondo. Sean Kemp and Gary Payton did not like him either. So now, so exactly. now, so now, so now he's got a history of See, being okay, like the Larry Brown who didn't win. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. But, 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 but let's, go, let, let, let's go here, then let's go here. But then you look at this, right? Kobe didn't get along with Phil Jackson. So, I mean, a, a superstar not being able to get on with their coach for the sake of having a, a team and getting to the finals, does that really make them a superstar then? Look at Allen Iverson. His, his relationship with Larry mm. Brown wasn't always, wasn't always gravy. You know, the, the, right, but here's the contrast, though, Paul. Here's the contrast. The triangle that Kobe played in the first three years they won was built around the dynamic of him and Shaq. The triangle that he played in when they won the two titles and went to three finals was built around his play on the elbow. Iverson, like we said, Larry Brown literally built – he was the first guy to say, I've got a one-man offense. Let's see you stop it. And Iverson came off curls for 48 minutes a game. <laughs> moving him to the two – I don't moving, know what they were doing in Denver. <laughs> moving yeah, yeah, him to the two guards. I don't know what the they were thing doing ever. in Denver. Right. But I don't know what they were doing in Denver. I don't know what their offense was. I don't know what their system was. I don't know what their game plan was. I know that Chauncey Billups was good in the pick and roll. He could find shooters if he drew defenses. Melo always had his 17 jab steps and I'm going to go to the basket and mid-range post-up game and all that stuff. But I really don't know what the staple of a George Carl offense was. I mean, even if you trace his coast in history, like, what did he do in Seattle but just give yeah. Gary Payton permission to throw the ball in the air? <laughs> yeah. And by yeah, the way, that's yes, 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 yes. the X Factor on that team. Agreed. Yeah, Agreed. yeah. Agreed. It wasn't, oh, wasn't my man McKee they, over they there? Hershey Hawkins? Well, let me, let's get back to that Carmelo team, right? They also had Nene, right, who at that time oh, – so, Yes. They also thought that nah, guy – yes, but, 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 Wow. Let's break it down, right? That that's remember the year that West that Carmelo went to the Western Conference Finals with Chauncey Bill and he lost to Kobe, right? Four games, four games to two. Right? He lost to Kobe. So again, Melo to two has mm-hmm. had I can I, I can easily agree with some of the stuff you're saying, right? He's not necessarily making teammates better. Let me let me throw this in the mix, and this actually is not necessarily in Melo's favor, but it depends on how you view this, right? Do you feel, and this is to both of y'all, right? And I think I might have said this to you, Smart Alex, but do you feel Melo's game had gotten any better from college? Because in college, it seemed like all the moves that were very effective, he just continued to do in the NBA. And it, it just seemed like his necessarily, but most guys get to the NBA, they become a better defender or a better three-point shooter or a better this or a better that. Like LeBron can shoot. I, I, I think he's or a great teammate. I just teammate, think necessarily 
he was put in situations where maybe in his mind he felt like I don't need to pass the ball. You know, I don't know. Again, I can't speak for Carmelo, but all right, let me speak to let me I'm gonna speak to a couple things and I'm gonna pass the pass the rock to Paul because I believe like my answer is gonna allow him as a trainer to speak to exactly what it is that I think you want to have addressed. So first and foremost, I don't know if you guys ever watch Vlad TV, but Iman Shumpert has been getting a lot of pub from Vlad TV lately. He spoke to a time where during his rookie season playing with Melo in New York, Melo took a contested three with two people on him while Shumpert was wide open. Shumpert had a tissy fit in the locker room about it. And at first people were trying to keep him out of Melo's ear. Melo got wind of what you guys can go to, you know, YouTube and pull it up. Melo got wind of what Iman Shumper was upset about, and he said, I trained for that. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, I only say that because that's just an opportunity to get a look inside of Melo's mind from another basketball player. Here's my actual take on Melo and why he doesn't make teammates better. There's a certain element to your game as a basketball player that allows you to on offense, influence the defense and make other players around you able to excel at what their skill sets allow them to benefit from. I believe that Melo, because he had such a heavy AAU-trained isolation game that had no type of built-in passing instincts, that's what we got for, or that's what we're getting for the entirety of his career. Like, all of his counters lead to him taking a scoring attempt. He doesn't have counters that allow him to, again, allow other players on the team to benefit from all of the attraction that he, that he, that he brings to the court. Melo gets the ball in the mid post. There's two defenders looking at him, the guy guarding him and the guy one pass away. Usually when a guy like Kobe has two defenders in that position, he's going to do something that's going to pull that second guy to him, and that defender that left is now going to have to face closing out. When Melo does it, like I was just alluding to with the Iman Shepard story, he's still trying to figure out a way to score himself. And that's where that element of making a teammate better doesn't exist for me. Yep, I agree with that. I think that <laughs> I think is I mean when someone's training, if their role is to be a shooter and be the best shooter on the floor, you gotta have that scorer's mentality. But at some point to truly evolve your game, you have to be different. Like Jordan could create, not just score, he could create for others. He could get the offense going. Kobe did that as well. And I think like Dwayne Wade did that. LeBron, of course, does it phenomenally. Melo doesn't have that. KD does. And I just think, you know, I, I think that's not it's just it's just not there for him. So I think what you're saying is the fact he said, I trained for that, he's not lying. He is one track minded. And I think that's been the detriment to why so many people respect Melo. Like Melo, I think, is the most of, of our era, our generation. He's the most respected scorer of our era who garners the least amount of respect as a basketball player. I'll go with you that. know, even Iverson got credit for making his teammates better, even though we knew he was entitled to shoot 65 yards a game. Those three times that he passed to Snow and Aaron McKee and they hit the shot, good pass, Ivy, good pass. <laughs> but like I said, like I said, Allen Iverson was the first player I ever saw who had the, in case of an emergency, I'm going to pass the yep. ball button. He would jump in the air, and like we spoke to earlier, he would be prepared to take a hit. And then if he couldn't get a shot off, he was going to turn his head in whatever degrees he had available and pass to somebody. 
that was his creating for another team. Now, did he other and other opportunities, of course, pass to the open man? Of course he did. But I just don't think, like you said, Paul, he has that instinct where if Melo catches the ball in the mid post and it's an early closeout, I'm not an early close, but an early trap. So they're, they're, so the defense has agreed when Melo gets the ball, we're going to trap before he dribbles. Melo is the type that when that trap comes, he's going to swing his elbows to create space rather than I'm going to swing my elbows to occupy the defense and allow the guy who's being left to cut back door and make a simple bounce pass. The things that you see great scorers and great players like LeBron and Luka well, do all right. without hesitation. And I think that's where the issue is. It's really well, okay, hard think of it to like take a guy this. like Melo and condition many him ways to, to look becoming at you guys. a great you guys passer. are framing Melo against greats that didn't have another great, a, a greater, besides Iverson, everybody you mentioned, you guys mentioned from Kobe to LeBron to D Wade to KD, they didn't win until they had that second great player. Who was Melo's second great player? It could have been Amari. Could have been um, Amari Stoudemire. It could have been Amari. It could have been. Listen, Chauncey Billups was never the best player on any of those Detroit teams. He didn't, was just didn't the most average, average. But they kept running into the Lakers. The same year he played with Melo. Yeah, they both scored. They both yep. were top ten in the league, or maybe even top five, or top five in the league in scoring when they played together. So, listen, scoring has never been a problem with with Melo as far as his teammates. You know, he's always I, I, okay when he played with Amari. What did Amari average? Eighteen, nineteen a game. Now, we all know Amari was a wounded animal by mm-hmm. that time, and the microfractures that he had had as a teenager were finally starting to catch up to him. So he, he, had begun, he had begun declining. I won't take that away. But here's the problem with how Amari's decline happened. Like you alluded to earlier, the mm-hmm. Knicks gave away so much talent to bring Melo in that the ability to give Amari the, breath, the, the, the breaks that his body obviously needed to allow him to still be functional weren't there anymore so a guy like him who was going at it and having a borderline mvp season season but only averaging like maybe 34 35 minutes a game because you could bring in all those other backup guys and they could spell you for eight to ten minutes they're not there anymore so now he's got to play more minutes and then on top of playing more minutes he's playing okay let me let me let me counter to what you guys are saying right nothing else is happening and oh wait, and one more thing, and one more thing, and for that ball across half court, Melo, unlike any other player who's great in a D'Antoni offense, is not crossing half court with the ball. He's waiting for Jeremy Lin to give him the ball. Greatest point guard in New York history. So, right? so, so now, so now, so now, the way that D'Antoni structures his offense, if there's a two man game that D'Antoni's ever done, it's always pertinent on that guy who's the primary ball handler initiating it. So if Jeremy Lin is your starting trigger point for your two-man action, that takes Amari out of the play immediately because D'Antoni knows okay, they so, brought Melo so here and traded everybody. I got to get Again, they never have a player. Go ahead, knows. Chris. All right, let me, say, let me say this about Amari, right, because you guys mentioned Amari. Amari's first season is 2010-2011 season. He played 78 games. 27 of those games was with Melo. Remember, in the playoffs, Amari punched the fire hydrant and broke his hand, right? So they couldn't defeat Boston that year. It, they, again, but listen. They weren't going to anyway. They could have given him Iron Man. Okay, but listen. <laughs> listen, but you guys, but listen. Amari, that was the only time as a Nick that he played. He played 78 games his first season as the Knicks, 47 the second season, 29 the third season, 65 the um, 
the fifth season, and actually the season where the Knicks won 54 games, which is in 2000 and, um, 2012, he only played 29 games. So, because yeah, because Carmelo had that's why they won. That's himself. why they won. So, so again, do these. Okay, but again, statistically, what I what, what I was trying to point out to you is true. That 2010-11 season that Melo joined them, exactly. he played 78 games, and how many minutes per game did he play? 36.8, which yes. is the highest that's he ever I'm... played in his so career, again, so other than I'm his second is, season in Phoenix. At what point they broke does Melo have that second star where D-Wade had LeBron, Kobe had Shaq, Kobe Heck even had Paul Gasol and Andrew Biden. You can say uh, Kevin Durant. He has Steph Curry and Clay so, Thompson. Remember, he didn't win with James Harden and Russell Westbrook. Now, yes, he could have won, but he did not win. So whatever elite player that you guys mentioned, they all had other upper echelon players, or at least all-star, consistent all-star players. So Melo's never had that. I'll, I'll get, I'll okay, get, so are we are, are we like forgetting the whole yeah, and they went thing that I mentioned before? He played with Chauncey Billups, a seven-time Eastern Conference. Okay, seven-time Eastern Conference Finals. Two, 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 two. Three times, or is it two times they went to the finals in Detroit, two, or three? Two, two times that lost one. Okay, so two times you go to the finals. He got traded out yeah. and brought into Denver. He brought them to the Western Conference Finals. The I the, the problem and, and the mellow issue it has so many layers. To it. The problem is, is that he's in the middle of all, I, I, and geez. that's why and that's why you can't remove him from the um, the speculation. And, and let me jump on this one because I know I, I see you guys waiting for this. Let's go to let's go, let's go to OKC. We're not even going to Uh-oh. talk about the fact that he was rated. I think I saw an article. Oh no, no, we know Melo's not playing defense. On that's not in his contract. We know that. Worst, like, in that's a clause. That's a clause league. in his contract. That's... Right. <laughs> He's there allergic to defense. Like, <laughs> so ah, ah. if you could catch COVID playing defense, Melo is safe. <laughs> so here's the th- here's the thing. When he said <laughs> to that to that interviewer, when oh, he no, said, his was over. "Oh, I'm not coming off the bench." When he said that, and when I when I said that, I was like, "He's done. He's absolutely done." So when everyone talks about, "Oh, he got blackballed," I'm like, "Screw that. He blackballed himself." And the thing is, he's not no rookie coming out of the league, or he's. You know, he's brand new to this. He's a seasoned vet. And this is supposed to be his chance. He's finally got guys he can play with. Westbrook, Paul George, who's getting to his prime. And he's sitting there saying, I'm not coming off the bench. It's all about ego. It's all about being defensive and sensitive. When he said that, I, if I'm a GM, I'm not taking him at all. He, he put himself in a casket when he did that. I honestly disagree. I felt like at that point where who he, where he was, where his stature was, what he had done in the league, he had earned the right to be able to question whether or not a reporter could ask him that. Now, that question needed to be revisited after a few games of them playing together to see if he still felt that way. You know, are you keeping the same energy that you had after all the, you know, the, the, the preseason photos and preseason? Because that was a preseason press conference. So a guy just got traded there. He's coming into a situation where everything's new. It's a new culture. That kind of, I don't put that on the same level of we're talking about practice. I do see how damning it is when you come into a new team, a new environment, and you've been selling the fans on all you want to do is win. You probably should say the team-centric thing and be like, listen, whatever coach wants me to do, Mm -hmm. I'll do. But you're also standing head and shoulders with a guy who's won 
two gold medals by that but, time. But at that point, that a point national career, championship. He's not Iverson. When NBA Iverson scoring that, title, he was on a different. He was he was in his prime. Melo was not in his prime. So when he was saying that Melo also had the tag on him that he that I don't know maybe I'm rephrasing I'm saying it wrong saying he wasn't a good teammate but he had something no he, he had something, yeah, 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 he did not have a clean slate so I think that he definitely report, didn't he definitely didn't he made job. he made he made a series of I think the career damning mistakes that he made I don't think any of them actually took place in those cities so it wasn't Oklahoma City and Houston that set him up it was how he conducted himself those last two seasons in New York that really because he had an opportunity to go elsewhere. He forced New York to give him an extension. And then a year later, he said, trade me. That's when pretty much all of the NBA turned on him. It's like, wait, what? You just got the Knicks to give you like $127 million or something crazy like that. And now here we are a year later, and you're saying that you can't work with anybody and, and you want to be out? And then on his side, he was saying, no, nah, that's not me who wants to leave New York. It's Phil who wants <laughs> me gone. So it was just like... Nobody can make sense of what was going on with Melo. So when he got, quote unquote, freed to go to Oklahoma City, we expected and hoped that he would understand and appreciate the opportunity. But like you pointed out, Paul, what he said was absolutely not team centric. And it probably was the damn blow. It probably was the damn blow. And then when he went to Houston. What happened to you? Well, remember, according to the, according to, remember, uh, Houston's all about the analytics. And I think their, their analytics are based off a 10 game. Uh, pace. So whatever you do within a span of 10 games, they base the rest of your season off of 10 games. So Melo, that, that was the whole thing with Melo, is Daryl Morey likes to base uh, things off of a 10-game synopsis because he looks at it and says, okay, well, if you did this 10 games in, there's a possibility you'll do this in 20 games. you do it in third. So th- so and then with Dan, Dan and Tony's system. Yeah, your projection is, is going to, I they, agree. Mello was I agree getting to some in extent trouble that he is analytics-driven. They were looking at Melo like, you need to shoot threes. Threes only. Threes or dunks. And, you know, again, a guy like Melo. Mm-hmm. But I think Houston was also a setup. Remember, Melo got Dan and Tony out of there. So now this is payback for Dan and Tony. Say, oh, well, now I'm in control. You know what? I'm not in favor of Melo. And also, we talked about a prior episode Okay, okay, okay. I'm, thinking, I'm still rocking with Melo, yeah. man. I know Let's you go like into, him, but... listen, my theory on Melo and Houston. <laughs> listen, listen, I'm not anti-Melo because I felt like I felt like in Houston, and we spoke about this in a previous podcast, Melo was victimizing Houston, but he also walked into that situation being blind as an idiot. And I told you this before. Was the defensive coach of Houston was Jeff Vizdelic. Melo got that man fired. Correct. So you're going somewhere to be coached by a guy who knows you don't play defense and you got him fired. Then you're going to go play for a guy who you got mad when he took advantage of the Jeremy Lin hysteria and decided to allow him to be the primary ball handler or the person who touched the ball the most. And you weren't a fan of that. And you ruined Lin sanity, a multi-billion dollar entity. You ruined Mm -hmm. And you're going to go play for that guy. And on top of that, you're so anti-analytics in what we're doing in Houston that it's just, listen, sometimes friendships don't work out. CP3 pulled every plug he could to get Melo there. It backfired. It ruined his relationship with Harden. It ruined Houston's relationship with their best defensive coach. It also made it look even more galling that they had let go Mm. of Bob Mute and um, Ariza the, the season before. So you got all those guys out of there and you're what we have the show for it. 
the thing that yeah. made me feel bad was Melo turned the corner the night they cut him. He was 28. He, he was had 28. his best game as a Houston Rocket. He had scored something like 23, 25 points. He was something like oh, wow. 28. And I, think he, and I think he was like five mm. for seven for three. Like he literally figured out how to buy in. And they walked him out the door. That part hurt me. Because when you finally exhibit something that shows that you have the potential to fit in, I think that's on the team to allow that to let itself ride out. And I just don't know your reputation for shake. So I but what fair agree. shake was they going to be? Maybe Paul Houston can attest to his, yeah. uh, since he is the guest of the show, he can attest to the fact that, um, but again, let me actually, no, going back to my, my other question, do you guys feel like Melo, the same moves that he was doing now or throughout his career, do you feel like he got any better in, from college? Because in college, he was doing those moves and he got them a national championship. But, but again, but do they work to his detriment? Because okay. all those moves still work. Yeah, yes, because he's like a, I call him the offensive stopper. And I, I mean that in a negative sense because I think he, he's, yeah, he's, a, he's a possession stopper. Like he's like, he's, we used to play with like Gavin and we used to call him last pass. We call him. Like, <laughs> I know it. We, as basketball players, we already that that phrase has traveled the globe. So we already know who that guy. Because is. Go we ahead, know, though. like whenever he got it, that was it. You see that again? Got either get back on defense or ready to rebound. And with Melo, he's standing there making you know ten jab steps and whatever, shooting a step back three. It's great if he gets hot and starts hitting five mm-hmm. in a row. But if he's missing, you got no rhythm, no no nothing, and it just it, it just like for example, look at, let's fast forward to Portland, right? That was a publicity stunt. Portland have been awful this year because they traded half their team away. The big fella gets hurt. And Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, they can't win together. They're too similar. you got to, you got to trade McCollum. McCollum, CJ's a great... I've spoken to that, man. Oh, wow. A, oh, oh, I love this. Ah, a great can I trade? Oh, can I trade? Can I trade? Can I trade, Chris? Oh, there's a couple, a couple of us. <laughs> nah, and nah, I'm like, nah, you, you, know, you got two, two guards that just shoot an absolute ton. And then you bring in Melo, who just shoots his, not as much, but he's a shooter as well. That, to me, that was a diversion. That was a diversion to not call for people's jobs, for not a fan base. That was a publicity stunt, in my, my honest opinion. I think that Portland had put themselves, like you're pointing to, and I just want to put more context on it. Portland, and we spoke about it on the podcast before, Portland put themselves in a really precarious position this past offseason, when we were trying to like forecast and project what they were going to do, mm-hmm. we we had to play on the air of on the side of caution. Am I right, C. Grant? Because their previous track record, th- listen, they were fresh out of the Western Conference Finals, right. so you really can't point at them and say, "Well, they don't know what they're doing," or "It was luck." You don't get to the Western Conference Finals off pure luck. Mm-hmm. That's two rounds of basketball. Now, it may have been luck because they got mollywopped in the in the Western Conference Finals, but. They had something right there. I've always felt, just like you said, Paul, if you give C.J. McCollum his own team, you unlock a version of C.J. McCollum that is probably right on par with Damian Lillard. He's that good by himself, and he has that ability to create for others because what did he play in college? Point guard for Lehigh. And what is the novice thing to do in the NBA? Your point guard needs to be 6'2 and taller, and he's right there. With the ability to navigate a pick and roll, his mid-range game is deadly. His long-range game is deadly. He doesn't have the in-the-gym range that Lillard shows, but he's deadly enough from the three-point line that he's going to command respect on all three levels. And I think those two guys together 
although they can play together, I don't know if winning long-term together, it's already been kind of exhibited that it's not going to happen. Yeah, he, but because he's Hassan concept, Whiteside yeah. wasn't having a bad statistical season. I think he's averaging a double-double. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I think the problem with Portland was that they let go of glue, and it, it keeps happening. Glue guys like um, Alfarika mm-hmm. Minu got let yep. go. Um, they, they, got, uh, they got my boy Harkless That's out right. of it. They let the guys go who were willing to get dirty, not ask for any mm-hmm. accolades for you're it, me- you're meat and potato guys. allow that system yeah. to run. Yeah, you're meat and potato. And you let those guys go, and then you just figure you can, you know, hot swap, plug and play any token random, you know, forwards, and it didn't work. Because look who what they look at what they wound up replacing over the course of the year. They replaced Melo to play the four because they let go of Al mm-hmm. They went and got Trevor Ariza to play the three because they let go of Harkless. So here mm-hmm. you are. You base, that's what you essentially traded for. And you take away continuity. Mm-hmm. And those guys, like mm-hmm. he, like 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 Paul pointed to, those meat and potato guys, that was us. That was us, C Grant. We knew what it was. If if coach called the play for Glenn, what did we do once the ball got to Glenn? We either prepare for the rebound or prepare to get back on defense. Same thing for JJ. There's just certain guys you know the moment that that ball goes in that direction, you might as well prepare for getting back on defense or setting a screen or something useful because it's not going to be about you touching the ball again and doing something exciting. I think that because those guys that they had in place at the beginning of the season without Melo weren't prepared for what their roles were going to be, Portland suffered tremendously. And then, like you said, you lose Nurkic. Who Nurkic? Believe mm-hmm. it or not, he, he no, no. I, I totally get to it. I think with good. Portland situation too. They also Rodney Hood also tore his ACL. Yep. I think it was no, oh, it's Killers. One of the two. That yeah, but I mean, a lot of their like you said, a lot of their good locker room guys, the role players, he tore his Achilles. A lot of those guys go down, and so what they try to do is supplement. You know, four or five role players that they lost, they try to supplement that with Melo as, hey, well, we need points on the board. We can't score, so Melo come in. And you know what's crazy? Let's go to the backtrack to Melo. That Houston situation where he only played 10 games and he started two, those eight games that he came off the bench was the first time in his career. So, again, a guy like Melo, you're asking him to make that transition mm-hmm. when we don't, in Melo's defense, I'm going back to Melo's defense, we don't know what role he was bought in and what was told, what was sold to him to come in at this, hey, we need you to be a scorer. They might have not told him, hey, we need you to come off the bench and be a Jamal Carl or uh, Jamal um, Crawford or be a Vinnie Johnson. We need you to be the mellow that we saw in Denver, the mellow we saw in Prime New York. So he probably was like, bet. No, he but the, every but the proof game. is in the pudding long term because what role did he play for? Did he come off the bench? When you tell the guy, hey, we only need this from you, exactly. then when you start switching it up or you're allowing the media to control what the front office does, guys like that get confused. And Melo only knows to score. <clears throat> but Melo is a media sensitive guy. Melo is the same guy who got caught, caught on a boat sitting next to a girl and had to go live. To let the world know, not his wife, who we all know he has his issues, but th- you, you get the point I'm trying to make. Melo is socially concerned with his perception. And sometimes being so concerned with your perception is outside of the team dynamic. So, yeah, you get it. You want to start. That's what you're known for doing. But if you want to win, then you have to be able to capitulate to the needs of the team. And that's, I think, Paul's pressing argument. At no point have we seen Melo be something other than what we saw him be. And can you really hold that against him if that's all he knows? No. But can you hold that against him if he knows it's not 
a part of a winning formula. And that's the problem. Melo's game doesn't and hasn't ever really supported a truly winning formula other than the one place where you can be so much better than everybody else and win a title, which is in college. If you're leaps, let's go back to that year that he dragged Syracuse to the title. Who else college-wise was worthy of being mm-hmm. talked about? Dwayne Wade? He was playing in Marquette. You get what I'm trying to say? Like, the, if you go back into that draft class that he was a part of, the best players in that draft, only two of them mm-hmm. were really college players, and that's that's um, Chris Bosh. Yep. And that's Dwayne Wade. You got LeBron at the top of the class ah! out of high school. And don't so, forget Dark, don't forget Dar- Darko. <laughs> yeah, Darko never smelled cop. Darko never even smelled college. So we don't even there was not even any footage of Darko playing basketball during that draft. <laughs> like you know how you know how like Fran Fashilla now everybody's got a label because Fran Fashilla has seen everybody who's played anywhere in the world. He can oh this guy's gonna be the next and, and he'll project another foreign guy who we've never heard of and say that he's gonna be the next this person or that person. That that type of stuff wasn't even available back then. But Melo and his AAU game, and I think that's part of what made it so hard to crack Melo. I won a national title being who yeah. I am. Why do I have to change? Why can't you guys build a system that makes what I do great enough? To and you touched on it. I think that you said not, not a fan of defense. What mm. do they play in Syracuse? Runs that two three uh, that two three zone. So Melo can correct. Be, it gets long long athletic guys who can be in that zone who can move quick. Yeah, I can and that's work. It. And they had an amazing. Who's the guy? Court. I mean, people Warwick? forget Hakeem Warwick, who makes the who makes the block heard around the world on Kansas <laughs> when he reaches with those. I, I mean, I guess he didn't cut his fingernails that day because <laughs> to this day, if we go back and watch that, guys that are listening on the podcast, go back and just type in Hakeem Warwick block. It's going to come up, and it's honestly one of the greatest blocks. It's probably better than some of the LeBron blocks that won championships. That's how ridiculous that reach was for him to get to that ball. But I um, think we, I, let me we, just, let me push something here. I think the only I think the, the best thing for Carmelo right now, who's obviously still playing, is LeBron James. Because LeBron James, I think, is the only guy they can they can take him right now and say, Look, we need you to play this role and we can help you win. You can help us win. The sa- the same way he did for J.R. Smith, the same way he's done for other guys. I agree. Oh. I agree. My only issue with that is that because of where Carmelo plays on the floor. The only way you get Melo on that team is if you don't have Kuzma. And because of the repercussions of either making Kuzma go away or relegating him to a lesser role than what he currently has, I don't think the politics are in place that will allow that to happen, which is probably why Melo never made it to New York. Because I thought that the next move, and I don't think mm, I ever we spoke didn't know that. brought it to light on the podcast because I try not to talk too much. I'm a Lakers fan. So we both try to tactfully... We both try to tactfully not over mention the teams that we cheer for on a personal level so that it doesn't become a, you know, like the platform for our podcast. But I did think that once they got all those guys and got Anthony Davis, that Melo would be coming and that, you know, they would find something to do with Kuzma, flipping for an asset. They didn't. I think that as long as you have Kuzma there, that's why he can't be a Laker. But he would be perfect for that role where when LeBron isn't on the floor, for 15 to 20 minutes a game, whatever the case may be, where you stagger their minutes, where maybe they close out games together, but that 15 to 10 minutes where you give Melo the opportunity to be the Melo that we know, he's unstoppable. I agree. I agree. And again, I, I, I hate on the guy in a joking sense. Obviously, I respect how good he is, especially as an individual scorer. Let's do that. Let's, 
let's let's bring it let's let's bring it to a, a full ribbon before we all wrap it up. Talk to us about the facet of Carmelo's game that make him so. Tough I think the to fact that he's six eight, the fact that he can square up, he gets the shot off so quick. Um, his ability to pull up in transition is something I've always admired. His footwork in the jab series is great, and I love the way he rebounds as well. Hey, I've been telling you. I'm trying to tell you guys. I've just been trying you to tell it. you. See, Grant, you feel better now? I'm mellow for no reason, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, 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 wait. Speaking of that, Mel- see, Grant, did you ever go find that clip I told you to find on YouTube? Listen, both of y'all, y'all both sound like y'all could use a laugh tonight. Go on YouTube and type in Mellow Rebounds. It's one of the funniest things you'll ever listen to on YouTube. Carmelo Anthony going for rebounds is some of the most hilarious audio in basketball history because, honestly, it's us. It's us as us, you know, six feet and under guys. When we get a chance to aggressively grab a rebound, all the nonsense that we let come fly, give me that! And he's doing it for, like, ten minutes. It's the most hilarious thing ever. Um, Paul? It's been our pleasure to have you be a part of the podcast. We definitely are extending open arms for you to come back whenever the opportunity presents itself. Before we go into our wrap-up, what I'd like you to do is quickly tell everybody where they can find you on social media, what you have going on, and if there's a means that you would like to be contacted by. Excellent. Thank you guys so much for having me on. I appreciate it. I've enjoyed talking with you guys and, and learning some stuff as well. Um, but to find me, the best way is Instagram, and you would go at Drills and Skills B-Ball, D-R-I-L-L-S. A-N-D-S-K-I-L-L-S-B-Ball, B-B-A-L-L. And you can shoot me a DM on Instagram. You'll see a lot of the videos I post there. I have an online training package. Um, it's very affordable, and it's stuff that you download it. You keep it for life. And we have one for shooting, for ball handling, uh, for finishing. And there's also a coach's package as well. So you can learn offensive plays, how to break a press, how to beat a zone, etc. And right now, um, I'm offering some Zoom-free uh, in-house ball handling drills so players can still work on their game as much as possible in a safe, isolated um, space during this time. Awesome. And on that note, we're going to wrap up episode 64 of Views from the Clutch. As always, we thank each and every one of our subscribers and listeners. If you would like to contact us, you can do so by leaving a voice note on any of the podcasting platforms where we are hosted. You can contact us directly by sending us an email at viewsfromtheclutch at gmail.com. You can find us on social media at Views from the Clutch on Instagram and Facebook. Tag us. It's a discussion. We'd love to share with everyone. On that note, I wish that everyone stay safe. Stay inside and to yes, the essential indeed. workers. All I right, thank everybody, you have your services. Good. Very much appreciated. Peace.